I'd like to invite you to turn in your Bibles to John's Gospel, chapter 20, and we'll read a familiar passage here in just a moment. Today is Easter Sunday, and this is where we celebrate the conclusion of Christmas. I don't know if you've ever put the two of those things together, but Christmas is where Christ is born. Easter is where he dies, but he does not stay dead. He is risen. And the plan of redemption planned for the Lord or the world before the foundation of the world uh, is played out in dramatic fashion and recorded as historical narrative in our copies of God's Word. And it's this that we look at today. The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead separates Christianity from all other religions in the world. No other religion has this component. And that would lead Paul later in his writing to the Corinthian church, if Christ has not been raised, then all our preaching is in vain. And our faith is in vain. A few verses later he will add, and we are still in sin. That would mean the payment for our sin is on us. The payment for sin that God had promised back in the Garden of Eden when man and woman sinned to begin with. So these could not be more foundational truths than we as Christians know, understand, <coughs> proclaim, cherish that Christ is indeed risen, is everything. Now if we talked about this yesterday used a illustration I planned on using today. We had a, a funeral here at church. But it goes something like this. If you had in your mailbox a letter from a law firm, a fancy letterhead, the whole nine yards, and you open it up and read it, and you learn that you've been left several million dollars by a distant relative that you've never heard of. Now these days, you'd probably at least be skeptical. You'd probably look at whoever's watching your face as you read it and say, this is a scam. There's no way this is true. But I bet you a dollar, and I don't bet, and if I do, it's not much. It's just a dollar. <laughs> I bet you wouldn't throw it away. I bet you'd look into it. Not because of how good it sounds, but the weight of what it would mean to you and your life. The resurrection is not much different. It's a good way to illustrate it, even though the illustration is pitiful in comparison. The claims of the resurrected Son of God change everything. If they are true, they, they cannot be overlooked. But to those who are still looking, they're, they're, they're theming, thinking this might be a scam, it's a book written by men. Can it really be true? Yes, it's true. And on so many ways. This will not be a message on the credibility of the resurrection account. There's a lot of study that goes into that and a lot of scholarly work. And it's not the stuff of fairy tales. It's logically put together in linear fashion and it makes sense. But today I thought what we'd do is take a, a well-known passage. And we've got to be careful with well-known passages. 
The, the more familiar they are, the more likely we are to read right over the details and miss maybe some of the most convincing uh, details that are there. But to look through this and to try from our perspective to look at this as if we're skeptical, even if we're not. Sometimes that's a good exercise. To think of this and ask the question, is this the way men would have written a fairy tale? Is this similar to, say, a late dated fan fiction for those who were part of this when it happened and to maybe for some reason give them something to carry them along or maybe even uh, benefit yourself from writing it? If this is made up by men, is this what it would sound like or is this something that no one could make up? No one would make up. This is actually God coming into our area and revealing himself to us in a way that's unmistakable. So let's spend our time this morning uh, looking into it. And for those that are visiting that are, this is new to you, uh, hopefully this will be something that you can think through and arrive at your conclusion. Let's read our text. And that's in chapter 20 of John's Gospel. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene, I'm reading from verse 1, came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, the one we believe to be the author of what we're writing here from his eyewitness account. They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. And they're speaking in terms of a body, not a living person. So Peter went with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together. But the other disciple outran Peter. If that's John, he's much younger. That makes sense. And reached the tomb first, and stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Maybe he's afraid. But look at Peter. Then comes Peter following him and went into the tomb. He caught up and went past him. He saw the linen clothes lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. And this book is written that you might believe. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. Here's verse 11. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped looking into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting there where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and the other at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Same idea, still expecting a body. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, 
which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. Let's ask the Lord for help understanding this, his word. Father in heaven, we thank you for this passage of scripture, for the familiar story of Easter. We thank you for Easter Sunday. We thank you for a church full of people. We thank you for time to study your word. And Lord, we ask that you help us understand it, perhaps as never before. People in this passage didn't understand it until they saw your face. Lord, may we see your face. We ask this in your name. Amen. Now, I mentioned as we read through there that Mary didn't expect to see Jesus alive. And neither did anyone else in these narratives. The gospel accounts seem to be clear. They understood some things that Jesus said. They spent three years with him, that is the disciples. But to expect that on the morning of the third day they should find him living was not what we're reading. In fact, it takes a lot of convincing for them to believe this. Some even, I won't believe until I see him and put my finger in the wounds in his wrist, his feet, and his side. So we read this understanding and knowing these things and we want to superimpose on that uh, some blame that might not necessarily be fair. I think if we were all there it would take some time for these truths to come together and convince us as well. Even uh, if we were to do some diligent study in the Greek as to what the words mean when you see Peter there looking at the clothes it's a word that sounds like one we know it's uh, theorezo we get the word theorize from that. He's critically thinking through these grave clothes and the way they would wrap a body with spices there. And then the thing that was around his head is folded up, lying there. And he's thinking to himself, if this is the work of grave robbers, this is not the way they would do such a thing. This, this is not what we would expect. As if to lend credibility to the supernatural event that it is what it claims to be. The resurrection of God's Son. So the Easter story is actually told in a series of post-resurrection appearances. I don't know if you've ever thought of it that way, but it's not like the way Lazarus came forth out of the tomb and everyone was standing there watching when he walked out. After some had said, he's been in there too long, his body's decomposing. This happened before anyone got there. Jesus had already gone. Now we read that he's there in the garden and he speaks with some. But no one saw him walk out like some saw Lazarus. So these are all post-resurrection appearances. So a question I'd like to impose at this point is, why make post-resurrection appearances? Is it necessary from Scripture, prophecy, that Jesus reveal himself as risen? And of course there are reasons for it. At this point, none of his disciples yet believe it's going to take that much. But we're looking at this if this was made up, right? How would we write it? Or would we find ourselves trying to jump into the role of the superhero, which would be Jesus at this point, and write some things that we would write if 
Again, it's our story. Because that seems odd. And who he talks to. And how he talks to them. And who he doesn't go talk to. And we wonder why he wouldn't. So who did he go to first? We read about Mary, but when the women get there and they listen to the disciples, or the, the angels rather, he's not here and they give the information from the other gospels that he's, he's on his way to Galilee. Why Galilee? Where is Galilee? That's not the big town. It's the small town. That's the back country, the the town that the disciples caught a lot of flack for being from because that's not where smart people came from. That's where, and I could feel this with all types of slang from what we use to describe where people come from who aren't of uh, education or of means. But that's where he's going. And to who? These group of men that followed him but deserted him and quick fashion as soon as he had been arrested. That's where it says that he had headed. Now if we were making this up again, where would we have him go? Think about the story, how it happened, what took place the last three days of his Passion Week as it's described. How about going back to Pilate's place? How about picking up where they left off of that conversation about truth? You remember that? You've got Jesus standing there in front of Pilate, and Pilate asks, So, you're this king of the Jews. Jesus says, Is that what you were told, or do you say this yourself? And it seems as if Pilate shuts that down real quick by saying, Listen, your people gave you up to me. What do you have to say for yourself? And then he says this about how he's, he's there for the purpose of bearing witness to the truth. Actually to look at it as if he's, he's a witness. Not the criminal but the witness. What is a witness there to do? To bear witness to someone else that's on trial. Seems the truth is on the trial. He's there to bear witness for the truth. Pilate doesn't get it. He asks what is truth? As if to say that he might have fallen out of favor with such an idea. That in a powerful place is a powerful man connected to a very powerful empire truth isn't always convenient and maybe there's times where you have to overlook things like that to get things done what is that what is truth well Jesus could go back having raised from the dead after the execution that Pilate ordered and then washed his hands of and said let's finish out that conversation he didn't do that that'd be an interesting scene in a movie wouldn't it but that's not what he did. There were others he could go to. What about Caiaphas? If you're reading this from a Jewish perspective, he was the high priest. He put together the trial in, in the night, and that wasn't even legal according to Jewish law. The whole thing was a sham, but they acted as if it was law. This was the man that, that tore his clothes when he'd heard enough and said, what else do we need? We don't need any more witnesses. This man is a blasphemer. And as Jesus answered for himself, there was that uh, officer who, who struck him in the face. And Jesus says, if I had said something wrong, why have you hit me? It's that group 
And then don't forget Annas, that was the father-in-law of Caiaphas. Most people thought he was the real high priest. And a lot of his heirs became high priests. It seemed that a lot of politics were involved in that government and all those nods to Rome. But they were all in on that. They all sentenced him, sent him up the chain. And then there was uh, Herod. You remember him? You remember his father, Herod the Great. That was the one who ordered all the baby boys be murdered in Bethlehem when some wise men told about a, a king of Israel, king of the Jews. Well, this was his son, Herod Antipas. And Herod had taken a wife that really shouldn't have been his. And someone by the name of John the Baptist had the guts to tell him it was wrong. And Herod Antipas put John the Baptist in jail. And then one night at a big party, uh, this young girl danced, and he was so smitten with it, he made this idiotic vow, I'll, I'll give you whatever you want. So she asks her mother, and her mother says, John the Baptist, head on a platter. And because he said it in front of everybody, he couldn't go back on what he'd said. Everybody's watching. So he reluctantly gives the order to take John the Baptist's head from his body and brings it on a platter into the party for everybody to see. He also wanted Jesus dead. It came to Jesus and Jesus said, You tell that fox, Herod, called him a fox. Well now, Pilate has found out that Jesus is Galilean, so he's going to send him to Herod first. Maybe that'll be the end of it. He can handle this. So Herod's excited. The man's bound and he actually thought that Jesus was John the Baptist resurrected. He's a very superstitious man. But he'd heard of all the miracles. He wanted to see some for himself. And he had all these questions. He wants to see Jesus do some tricks and answer some questions. This is the one place where it says Jesus didn't answer any of it. He just looked at them. And then they bring out a purple robe to make fun of him. And they send him back to Pilate. That's another stop I'd like to have made. This man's so superstitious. Let's see the look on his face when he sees me alive after he knows I'm dead. And John. Interesting thing. At the end of that story, it says that Pilate and Herod became friends that day. They were enemies. Their political views were sorted out over the disposal of this Jew that was a thorn in their side. I think I'd like to go see that. But that's not what he did. He didn't do any of this. None of those action-packed scenes are written into this story because that doesn't fit the way that Jesus did anything that we do see in this story. It wouldn't fit. Ever notice how Jesus, and this is to the men he did go to see, would say when he would appear to them, peace be with you? It might just be a generalized shalom, but... Saying that to people who'd been through what they'd been through the last three days and all had deserted him. Or when he would say, I will never leave you or forsake you. Uh, maybe that has some extra meaning to a group of people. Especially Peter who denied him three times. Seemed to be, as far as Christ was concerned, something important about going to the people who followed him. Whose lives are now an emotional wreck because... What they thought the best part of their lives was now gone and over with. So he's 
done with his work, the work has been finished, right? Then he dismissed his own spirit on the cross after having said it is finished. That's the work God gave him to do. He'd been obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. From that point, God's going to give him a name that is exalted above every name, every, a name that every knee will bow and tongue will confess. All that's done on his part, but he sticks around. He comes back to these people whose belief in him need just a little bit more work. It's, it's still fragile. And that's what he chooses to do. Coming back to those who never expected to see his return. But before he appeared to his disciples, he appeared to Mary Magdalene. And it's interesting to me that uh, from verse 11 down to verse 18, it's a sizable paragraph in John's record of what happens. It has to do with Mary Magdalene. And again, we're learning from Jesus. This is God himself, how he chooses to interact with his created beings. How he treats them, how he speaks to them. Folks, think, think about that just for a minute. God left heaven, became a man to tell us that there's a way to have access to God the Father. And this is the way he deals with us. We're, we're learning here. You want to know how Jesus is? Look how he treats people. We get to see it right here. So who is Mary Magdalene? Well, from the biblical record, we know at least one thing from her background, that she's formerly uh, possessed by at least seven demons, which were exorcised from her. Some go as far as to think that she was a prostitute by trade in the past. Whatever you think of that, or the demon possession, um, just by going off of the way other demon-possessed people acted in the Scriptures, uh, like the demoniac from Gadara, uh, no clothes, crazy, supernatural strength. It, it's quite a fantastic story. But if you want to just boil it down to something you could write on a, a medical record, a mental illness would probably be a given. So she's a former mental case who seemed to follow Jesus around after having... Her life changed by him. That, that's who she is. And what Jesus does in this story might speak the loudest in this passage that uh, salvation is by grace. Not by application and credential. At the end of this story, she's the one that Jesus chooses to be the very first witness to tell the world that the Son of God is risen from the dead, having paid for the sins of the world. She gets the job. If, if there were an application process to be that player in the story, boy, you might just think, oh, that'll be hard. But a former mental case and a woman in this culture. See, that's another idea. If we were writing this, we wouldn't write that because if we were writing this, it'd be in a culture where women couldn't give witness in a court of law. They didn't trust them. This woman's hysterical. Some use that as the very means to say that this, this whole thing is, a, is made up. I think just the opposite. Go back to the lineage of Jesus. Matthew's gospel with women involved as well. No one put women in genealogies. Only God would do that. Only God would talk to a woman at a well. Only God would talk to a 
woman at the garden before he goes to Galilee. He's got big business to repair these men that fell apart when he was given into custody and then killed. So that's who Mary is. Well, who is Jesus to Mary Magdalene? Well, for all he was in her eyes, which seems to be quite extensive, Jesus was actually smaller than he really was. She's still looking for him to be dead, not alive. And the thing we learn from this is that Jesus reveals himself to her in a way where had he not, she would have never known who he was as the resurrected Jesus. She hadn't come to that point on her own. Folks, this is the entire record of the Bible, really, that we here on earth who do our best to piece things together, fall pitifully short without a purposed revelation of God that comes into this earth through the Son, Jesus, and explains it all to us. It's not that we find God, it's that God finds us. That's the way the Scriptures tell us the story. And had it not been for Jesus and this discussion, Mary Magdalene, of all people, falls short. All the disciples fall short. Every one of us in this room without the resurrection falls short of what's necessary to have our sins wiped out and our presence guaranteed in the presence of God the Father. So God revealing himself to us is amazing. That's exactly what he does here with Mary. So how does Jesus reveal himself to her? Because at this point she supposes him to be the gardener. Well, he simply speaks her name. We sang through, the choir sang through this. You might have followed the words on the screen. But again, you're writing the story. You're Jesus. You're in the garden. And this woman that you cleansed from possession, spent a lot of time with, is hysterically crying because of your absence. And you're standing there, and all you've got to do is convince her that you are who you are, how do you do that? You'd probably say, hey, it's me. Don't you recognize me? Look at my face. You've seen it before. And I told you. I told everyone. The prophets told this stuff. It's me. That's not what he does. He calls her name. The identification from the sentences we're reading, you know, the, the object, how the language and the words work, where's the, ident where's the finger pointing? To Mary, not to Jesus. That's interesting, don't you think? How many of you like the name you were given? Some of us do, some of us maybe not so much. Sometimes it's a family thing. But how many of you like the way your name sounds when someone says it? And does it matter who says it? I mean, if you're at work, somebody calls your name. Or if you're a kid that's in trouble at school and it comes over the intercom. <laughs> Maybe not so much, right? But what about the person in life that said it first before you could understand what it meant? Perhaps you got to hear it before you were even born. You know, they say that we can remember music 
that our parents played while mom was carrying us around. But to hear mom say your name, that's something else, isn't it? And it seems to have an effect. It takes care of scraped knees. It takes care of a bad day where somebody might have made fun of that name. There's still nobody that can say my name like my mother, and she's been saying it for 40 years. But I treasure every time I hear it. I still wait on a call on my birthday because she's going to sing this goofy song too. She's my mother, and she and my father gave me that name. My daddy, that's different. To hear him say my name is usually in a different context altogether. Uh, wasn't meant to be funny. But with, with mom, it has to do with assurance and comfort. With dad, it has to do with approval. Dad taught me most of what I know. I spent my time in their homes. It brought me up. And for dad to say my name in, the, in, in a fashion where that's approval on something I've done or accomplished, that means quite a bit. And nobody else can say it like that because he's the greatest influence in my life. And then later, there was another young lady who would say my name. She's sitting over there on the front row. And there's something to be said about the biblical role of men and women and how uh, we are to love one another. Uh, it, it has to do with a validation process for men. And it has to do with um, a security, um, an endearment for ladies. In fact, the way it's described in the New Testament is you love your wives, wives respect their husbands. And not a respect is in obedience, but they approve of, of what he is and what he does. And the whole world could think very little of Isaac Mooneyham, but if, if Corey, my wife, thinks I'm as wonderful as she says I am, <laughs> it means everything. Her name can fix most of the troubles. And that's why you have to marry someone, right? When you find out that they love you and they want to, then you marry them. She has a choice in this. My mom and dad, not so much, <laughs> right? But for her to say my name is, is, is something else. And then there are three of them sitting on the pew up there. Me and Corey brought them into the world like my mom and dad brought me and my, brother and my brothers and sister into the world. Then I get to hear my name different. They don't call me Isaac. They call me Daddy. And usually that's among the first words. But you hear that and instantly from your head to your toes, you're struck with this feeling of responsibility because now it's on you. You're influencing them. You're bringing them up. They will look like you, talk like you, act like you. So when they speak your name, you hope that in there is all the security that you're responsible to give them, right? Now, there's one person I haven't had audibly speak my name yet. But some would say he spoke it a lot louder than that when I realized he left heaven to make sure that I 
then waste my life in so many different ways. And really all you've got to do to waste your life is just spend it on yourself. And I think one day I'm going to hear him call my name audibly. The man that made me. The man who came back for me. The man who made sure a Bible was written and people would preach it. Services like this. So the Easter story is kind of like Jesus continuing to show up to identify himself by establishing a relationship with you. Now think about that. America, you need no better definition of a society, a culture of people who are obsessed with their own identities. Right? And the, the cultural narrative goes this way. You decide who you want to be, what you like, who you are. You decide that and then you assert that. And you demand that the rest of the world accept it, even applaud it. That's what you've got to do, right? But that never works because we're a social group of people. And when everybody's saying, I'm more important than you, <laughs> it just doesn't work out. It's just a shouting contest. But if you can figure out or you can be involved in a situation where someone that you deeply respect respects you, someone that you deeply love loves you, someone you adore adores you, then you've got what shapes up to a a secure identity. Now, it's been said in Scripture that the promises of God can't be made on any other thing higher than Himself. The same is true with the establishment of those whose identity are wrapped up in Him. If He respects you, loves you, adores you for the man or woman that He created you to be, now that is a secure identity. Wouldn't you say? What Jesus is saying to this crying, weeping woman in a garden after his resurrection is this. By just the spoken word of her name, he's saying, I love you personally. That's God talking to a person. Call her by name. He's also saying, I love you expensively. There's nothing more expensive than the precious blood of, of the Son of God. And then he says, I love you eternally. This is going to last forever. You've seen my resurrected face. Because I'm resurrected, so you will be. Can you believe that? That he would come and personally do that for us is this a story we would make up or is this a story we'd never conceive of that God would want anything to do with us down to our given name and you know what even gets better than that he changed Peter's name Paul's name Abraham's name Jacob's name I'm pretty sure that we've got a name given to us by our creator it'll sound even sweeter than the name our parents gave us so the question is this morning, is your Savior a dead Savior? Or does your Savior live? And do you know it? Do you believe it? Has He called your name? 
My sheep hear my voice and they know my name. They know my voice. You say, I don't know. Keep thinking. Keep thinking these over in your mind. Keep looking at these. Keep testing the scriptures to see that they are true. Ask him. Talk to others. But if I were you, I'd look into it. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the opportunity to look into your word, to gaze into historical narrative, see how you spoke to a woman, how you gave her value and identity, how you saved her. It's not unlike our own story if we've confessed you as Lord and Savior. Lord, like the one who just blurted out, I believe, but help my unbelief. Lord, all your disciples' belief was fragile. We'd be joking and kidding ourselves to think that ours isn't as well. So through the power of the resurrected witness, raise us up to do things for you as you see fit. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you for calling our name. Thank you for the gift you gave us yourself, taking our place. We ask these things in your precious name. Amen. Pray with me. Dear Lord, uh, it has been good to be in your house today. Lord, we just thank you for this place where we can study your word, hear your word, and be taught your word. Lord, we just thank you for Pastor Isaac and his message. Lord, we thank you that you sent Jesus, Lord, to die for our sins. But the tomb could not hold him, Lord. He was raised again, and the tomb is empty. Lord, we thank you for that. Lord, we lift up especially the family of Jennifer Wilkins uh, in the home going of her dad. Lord, we also lift up Linda Boykin on a, in any unexpected loss of her husband, Tom. Lord, uh, we just thank you for these families. Uh, we lift them up in prayer support. We ask you to be with them, to comfort them, to care for them, Lord, and to watch over them. Lord, uh, we lift up our mission of the week, John Wilburn, who is, who is um, now in St. Vincent with Baptist Missions. We ask that you uh, provide his um, financial support, prayer support, Lord, and encouragement in the days ahead that he can continue on with his ministry to others. Lord, again, we thank you for this day and what this day means. Lord, the tomb is empty. Hallelujah. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.